Lord Jesus, uh, we just come before you right now, Father, and I pray, God, that you would just uh, have your healing hand on, on, on Jill and Jim, Lord, and God, I just, uh, I pray, Lord, that these would be your words, Lord, not mine. May you be all that comes from this vessel. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Um, the title of this message is also the question I want to ask you, and that is, what kind of ripples are you leaving? And you're thinking, well, that's a weird question. Yes, it is. Um, I can tell you what the question is not, however. The question is not, are you making ripples with your life? Because, but rather, what ripples are you leaving? Because no one's life is neutral. Okay? You are affecting someone, for better or worse. You are making a difference in someone's life. You are affecting them. Whether it is your family, your friends, your co-workers, your church, your community, you will leave some kind of an impact on someone. Whether it be great, small, or something in between. But you will leave an impact. There is no question of that. No person is an island. Okay? I mean, think in your own life. Who has influenced you? Okay? How many people have shaped and influenced the kind of person that you have become? Spiritually speaking, think of the, just the different pastors and believers and Bible teachers and, and even family members and, and Christ himself that are responsible for you sitting here right now, where you are in your walk with God. So many lives have poured into yours, and hopefully you in turn are pouring into the lives of others, right? Um, I have a couple different examples of this I want to talk about um, this morning. The first is um, from, from history, actually. It's kind of a familiar story, but I would like to read it for you all. Um, most of these events happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s, so just to give you a, some, some context. So. Um, in 1854, there was a 17-year-old boy who was working as a cobbler in Detroit. He didn't know Christ. He had no interest in spiritual matters or religion. Um, he had gone to Sunday school as a child, but he had stopped as he gotten older. And one day, his old Sunday school teacher was walking past that shoe shop where the boy was working, and he saw him. And he felt convicted by God to go in and speak to him, to share the gospel, maybe one last time. And so he goes in, and he says to the boy, you know, I'm worried about you. I'd really would like to talk to you. And so the young man acquiesced, and they went down into the, the basement of that shoe shop, and after some conversation occurred, that young man gave his life to Christ. Now that Sunday school teacher, his name was Edward Kimball. He is no one of particular fame or importance. However, the teenager that he led to Christ was D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody. Dwight Moody became probably the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. It's said that he preached the gospel to over 100 million people and that he traveled over a million miles. Traveling over, traveling over a million miles at a time when the only modern technology available to him was the train. Okay? No buses, no cars, no airplanes. And yet this man traveled over a million miles. He also founded, of course, the, Bible Moody Institute, or the Moody Bible Institute, 
which for over the last hundred years has trained up thousands upon thousands of missionaries to go around the world for Christ. Moody went on to influence another man by the name of F.B. Meyer. He was a London pastor. He was an extremely intellectual man who never focused much on Jesus in his sermons. And when Moody showed up for an event, Myers immediately disliked him. Moody was not well-dressed. He only had a fifth-grade education. By contrast, Meyer had a PhD. He had doctorates. He was brilliant. He was well-dressed. He looked down on Moody. But then he heard the man preach Jesus. And so many lives got saved. The Holy Spirit broke through his hard heart. And it convicted him and changed, changed him by the power of God. And for the rest of his life, Meyer would preach Jesus to who would ever listen. Meyer went on to influence another famous American evangelist by the name of Wilbur Chapman, who was a teacher and spiritual leader to Billy Sunday, who himself preached the gospel to tens of millions as well. The sawdust trail, right? That's what he was famous for back in the uh, post-World War I times. One of the people who came to faith in Christ because of Billy Sunday would be another evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham. And at a tent revival in 1934 in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, that same Mordecai Ham led a 16-year-old man by the name of Billy Graham to Christ. And Graham, of course, had more influence for Christendom in the 20th century than any single person ever in history. They say almost probably about a billion people heard the gospel because of Billy Graham. Tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of people came to Christ. No single person in human history has had more influence in terms of leading people to Christ than Billy Graham. Why? Because he said yes to Christ. One of those tens of millions is my own mother-in-law. And yet, all of those ripples that got created... They all started with one single Sunday school teacher who just wanted to make sure that his former student heard the gospel. And from that, a mighty ripple was created. So, it's a great example. In the Bible, I want to give you some other kind of examples of what I'm talking about this morning. The first comes from King Saul. Okay? The disobedience of Saul, this is not a positive ripple, happens around 10, 1030 B.C. It's in 1 Samuel 15, okay? Very well-known story, perhaps. God commands King Saul, son of Kish, to destroy all the Amalekites, even their cattle, for their centuries of wickedness and sin. The Amalekites were fearsome. The other tribes that the Jews went in and when they took Canaan, even they were afraid of the Amalekites. Even the Egyptians and the Hittites, the, the America in, in Russia of the ancient world in terms of superpowers, even they did not want to mess with the Amalekites because they were so ferocious, so barbaric, so ruthless in battle. And so God gave them centuries to repent, and they did not. And so he was going to judge them, and he was going to use Israel to do so. And he tells Saul to go and just wipe them out. And Saul destroys most of them. However, he takes Agag, their king, as prisoner. And he allows his men, as plunder, to keep the cattle. The good ones, at least. 
Now, it's not stated directly in this text, but we know it's not just Agag who survives. Because 15 chapters later, in, in 1 Samuel 30, a group of Amalekites actually come and kidnap David and his men's family from their camp while they are out to war. So when David and his, family, or David and his warriors return from battle, they are distraught to find that their entire family and their sons and daughters and their wives have been kidnapped by Amalekites. This is about 30 years after the events we're talking about now. So Saul did not wipe out all of the Amalekites because a generation from this moment, more Amalekites are going to threaten the life of David's family and that of his men. They will retrieve those, their families. Um, they will get them back. But that whole thing could have been prevented had Saul been faithful in what God called him to do. Samuel shows up and he calls out Saul for his disobedience. Samuel tells him that God is going to take the kingdom from him and give it to another. That being David, of course. Samuel makes it clear to Saul that partial obedience is the same as complete disobedience to God. Okay? A half-truth is still a complete lie. There's no difference. And I think Samuel summarizes these words up pretty well in, in this part of the story. Um, Samuel says these words. He says, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he does obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like divination, the sin of divination. And defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Think of the staggering weight of these words. To hear God say, I have rejected you because of your disobedience. Saul wept and he pled with Samuel. It did not make a difference. It was done. Now, Samuel would take out Agag, which I always tried to imagine really funny, this you know, like 80-year-old guy with a sword attacking. I don't know why that makes me funny, but I, I, just, I, just, I always imagine that being really funny. Um, but maybe that's just my own weird sense of humor. But God wants obedience. He doesn't want our offerings. He doesn't want our money. He wants our obedience. He wants our heart. He wants our allegiance. And this disobedience of Saul is going to have ripples that will lead down through the centuries. Not just what happens a few decades later with, with David and his family getting kidnapped, but you'll see in a moment. Speaking of David, let's, let's look at an example from David's life. If we go just about one whole book ahead in a chapter to 2 Samuel 16, we can see the mercy of David now David has been on the throne. The story of Bathsheba and all of that has transpired. Um, other things have happened in David's family that have been destructive between his sons and one of his daughters. And now Absalom, his son, has raised up an army against his father. He's trying to lead a rebellion, a coup d'etat. He wants the throne for himself. And while Absalom's army is moving towards Jerusalem... David has no choice but to flee the city of Jerusalem, okay? Because his army is in another city. So as Absalom's army is heading towards Jerusalem, 
David has to leave the city, go meet up with his army, so that then the two armies can face each other in battle. And the way that David leaves the city, we have kind of an inverted um, triumphal entry of Christ, right? Christ comes down from the Mount of Olives, he goes down through the Kidron Valley, he goes up through the Eastern Gate, which is called the Valley of Shadow of Death, because there are cemeteries on the east side of Jerusalem. And here's David, he's doing the opposite. David is leaving through the Eastern Gate. He's walking through the cemetery, which is called in, in Israel the Valley of the Shadow of Death because there's literally death all around them. So if you wonder where his inspiration for Psalm 23 came, it probably came from right there. And as he's heading up the mount, to the Mount of Olives and he's getting ready to leave, um, one of Saul's relatives, Saul is now long since dead, his family's dead, but some of his cousins are still alive. And his name is Shemai. Shemai being a relative of Saul and Kish, he is elated. His family lost power on the throne. And now it looks like it's going to happen to David. So he's excited. Ha, revenge it has come at last. Uh, my family lost the throne, and now David is losing the throne. Ha, ha, ha. He got what he deserved. Um, these are the thoughts of Shemai. And Shemai, he, uh, he sees David and his men leaving the city, and he starts throwing rocks at the king. And he starts hurling insults, and he's cursing him. And he's doing all, all of these things. Like, could you imagine walking up to any president and throwing rocks and cursing at the president? Like, how long do you think you will last until Secret Service gets a hold of you? About five seconds. Um, and one of David's men wanted to, can we just kill this guy? He, he's disrespecting the king. And David, in his moment of distress, he still says, no, let him go, leave him alone. David has mercy on him and spares his life. Now, after Absalom's army is defeated a few chapters later, it, you can imagine Shemi is terrified. He has every right to be so. Um, he runs to David. There's, it, it says in, the, in chapter 19 that there were literally thousands of people who were there to kind of rededicate themselves to David. Who do you think's first in line? He is, okay? He is terrified, and he falls on his feet and, or on his knees, and he begs David for forgiveness. And a second time, when he has no reason to, David shows this man mercy. This is how the uh, conversation kind of went for David and, and Shemai. If you want to bring up that next slide, please. When, when Shemi, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell face down before the king and said, My lord, don't hold it against me. Don't remember your servant's wrongdoing. On that day, my lord, the king, left Jerusalem. May the king not take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. But look, today I am the first one out of the entire house of Joseph to come down to you and to meet my lord, the king. Said, yeah, you... you you can kind of imagine the tone here. He is super apologetic. He's super sucking up. He's selling this harder than a used car salesman. Uh, please, please, please don't kill me. And yet, what does David say? You will not die. 
And David makes an oath to him. That's right, David makes an oath. David's mercy creates mighty ripples. We fast forward 500 years to the story of Esther. If you know the story of Esther, there's a wicked man by the name of Haman. He has deceived the Persian king into allowing him to murder and to basically annihilate all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Kind of like Adolf Hitler Sr. here. And yet, God uses Mordecai and Esther to expose this plot and this crime and to save the Jewish nation. When Haman is introduced in, in chapter 3, he is called Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite. And this doesn't happen just once. Several times in the book of Esther, whenever Haman is mentioned, he is referred to by the title, the Agite, the Agite, the Agite. Why? Because the author of the story wants to let you, remind you, this man comes from Agag. Now, yes, it's true that Samuel did kill Agag. And there's no clear text in the Bible that comes out and says it directly. There are some inferences. But we know other Amalekites survived. Obviously, they kidnapped David's family 30 years after they were supposed to all be killed. So Saul's laziness, his apathy, the cleverness of the Amalekites who escaped. Um, a lot of Second Temple Jewish writers were doing commentary on this passage. And they seem to agree that most likely one of Agag's sons or maybe a pregnant wife got away and that that heir of Agag continued on because Saul was disobedient. On the flip side of that, Mordecai is introduced to us as being the son of Jair, the son of Shemai. Oh, that's a familiar name. The son of Kish. Now, this is a 500-year genealogy that's been compressed to just three. The author wants to highlight those connections that Mordecai, and by extension Esther, because she's Mordecai's cousin, they are cousins, and that they are the great-great-great-great-grandchildren of Saul's family. Are, are you making the connection here? Because of Saul's disobedience, five, six hundred years later, we have the villain of Esther. It's a big ripple. But because of David's mercy, 500 years later, we have the heroes of our story. And these ripples collide. If David had killed Shemi, I don't know if Shemi had had his children yet in life, but if he hadn't, and David had allowed his men to slaughter him there on the, on the road, there would be no Mordecai, there would be no Esther. Think about that. On top of that, where Saul failed, Saul's great-great-great-great-grandchildren need to repair what their ancestor did. So God used the descendants of Saul to save the day, as it were. Mighty ripples. I want to talk about probably the two greatest ripples in all of history. And yes, one is greater than... The latter is greater than the former for sure. 
the one that was made from the fall of Adam and Eve. When they ate that fruit, it created a ripple that extended throughout all of history from the time of Adam moving forward. All have been affected by sin. There is not a single person in this room and on this planet who does not bear in their body, in their soul, the sin of Adam. That's why we need to be saved. Okay? So great was that ripple. It has moved through all history from that present moment when Adam ate through history to today and until Christ returns. The sin of Adam continues on throughout all of humanity. But praise be to God that he created another ripple, a better ripple, a bigger ripple, and where salvation was lost, where, where relationship with God was lost on a tree because of disobedience and curse came into this world. On another tree, thousands of years later, a man became cursed and he started an even greater ripple, one that would not just go from his moment of his death moving forward in time, it also extends backwards in time. Christ's ripple moves throughout the beginning and the end. It's why he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and everything in between. That's how great his ripples were. As to cross every moment of time, Old Testament, New Testament, Second Coming, First co- everything is covered by Christ. And Paul summarizes these words better than anyone, right? when he compares and contrasts these two. So then, just as one trespass brought condemnation for all men, so also one, one act of righteousness brought justification and life for all men. For just as though the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinner, sinners. So also, through the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. It's a mighty ripple. We are still feeling the weight of it today. And going back to my question that I asked you guys at first, what kind of ripples are you making? What kind of ripples are you making? Because we're all making some, some kind. For his glory or ours, right? Um, I want to wrap things up with just two questions I want to leave you with to think about. How much are you allowing Christ to pour into your life so that you can pour into the lives of others? Because if you want to make ripples, you need something to pour. If you want an example of what I'm talking about, you can read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 this week. And to ask a more daring question of you, to ask a question more, perhaps more thought-provoking, one that is not safe, but it is good to pray. Just be careful what you pray for. (laughs) Um, Are you willing to pray that God would use your life so radically for his kingdom that it could make such an impact across generations? like David or um, Edward Kimball just because he cared about a former student enough to share the gospel and the ripples that that creates. 
Would you be so daring as to pray that prayer? God, use me to make a difference in the life of my family, in the lives of my friends and my coworkers, and anyone within my sphere of influence, God, that it would make an impact in their lives that could go across generations in the lives of my children and grandchildren. We're just in awe of your power, God. Lord, how you literally know the story from beginning to end, God. How you, Father, can use um, the sins and failures of Saul and the sins and failures of us, God, and the mercy of David, Lord, and, and in our lives as well, Lord, to produce and do things, God, that we can't even begin to imagine, Lord. Things that could take centuries to come to fruition, Lord. But God, may we be salt and light, Lord. May we make a difference in our community, in our families. May we show this world Jesus Christ, Lord, that a world that so desperately needs you, Father. May we live in this world how it should be, Lord God, so that we may show others what it can be. And we just ask all of these things, Lord God. Use our lives how you will to advance your kingdom, God, for your glory, for your honor, Lord Jesus, not for our fame, not for our glory, not for our name, Lord Jesus, but for your glory and your glory alone, Lord Jesus.